Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Hey y'all, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Grace, and I am the community manager here at the StoryCraft Cafe. As we head into July and August, we are diving headfirst into our indie summer series with author talks and lectures from successful indie authors across genres. We are also continuing with our four weekly word sprints and are expanding our revamped writing group program. Also, don't forget, applications for our accountability group, the 500 Club, are open. You can sign up for July membership through July 15th, and after that, your application will count towards August membership. I know I'm throwing a lot at you here, but I do hope that you will come to check out our summer offerings and explore the conversations and resources that the cafe has to offer. You can find us online at storycraft.cafe. That's S-T-O-R-Y-C-R-A-F-T dot C-A-F-E. I can't wait to see you there. It's Monday again, and we are so thankful that you have chosen to spend a few minutes with us here in the StoryCraft Cafe. To kick this week off on the StoryCraft Cafe podcast, we have an interview with John Searles, and uh, a mystery thriller writer, and it's a great conversation. But before we get over to John, let's hear from CJ Box. Uh, talk about creating protagonists that are relatable and are human with, with flaws and not necessarily superhuman strength and abilities, uh, but taking those human qualities and making the best protagonist that you can. Be sure to join us for our live shows in the StoryCraft Cafe. We've got another one later this week. Uh, be sure to go check out the upcoming events in uh, StoryCraft.Cafe. Let's get over to CJ and then to John. Well, Joey's a Wyoming game warden, uh, meaning he works for the state. Um, in real life, Wyoming game wardens, there's only 50 of them. And they have districts that they call them up to uh, as, as big as 5,000 square miles that they're in charge of enforcing the, the game and fish regulations. And and um, game wardens in real life are very uh, they're very much alone when they're out in the field. They don't they can't call backup because they're too isolated. Um, they deal with things in their own way and. Uh, you know, rarely kind of get involved with other law enforcement unless they're forced to or need to. And that, that kind of goes to his character, too. He's, he's very much kind of a lone guy with a, with a mission. And he's got, um, he's happily married to his wife, Mary Beth, and he's got three daughters and is very devoted to them. He's not a private eye with a lot of baggage or, um, you know, an alcoholic who's raging around. <laughs> he's very much a normal guy and he screws up sometimes too, often actually. And I think because he's a human character that a lot of readers can kind of empathize with him. And I think it kind of creates more tension in some, in, in a lot of instances because he's not a Superman. 
and um, anything can happen and he can make the wrong turn or he can be bested easily. He's not going to beat up every guy or, or hang out with every girl. He's just trying to do his job. Well, and he also doesn't have every tool uh, at his disposal. He he doesn't have uh, a crime lab on on speed dial. He doesn't, you know, he, he can't get you know overnight DNA results and and all of this kind of stuff that are uh, you know are, are real crutches for a lot of mystery writers. And uh, it, he really harkens back to uh, to you know to to Sherlock Holmes style stories where it's really about his intellect and his uh, you know how he interacts with the the places around him and the people around him and to, to really you know unravel these things which which i think all of us can relate to and uh a lot easier also there's there's a lot of times you can't even get a cell signal where he's at which is very much um real life uh, out here in wyoming where you know you can go hours sometimes without getting one so you've got it it, it, it does make things more difficult sometimes it makes things a little easier as a writer because you can't count on all that instant technology but it's it is it's true to life um in those in the circumstances that i write about today i'm super excited to have john searles on the show with me he has an amazing new book it's called her last affair and guys you know that i love a great thriller and a great psychological suspense story and this book is i'm gonna put it this way um John, I love a book that when you finish reading it, it kind of ruins you from uh, from reading anything else for a while because <laughs> those characters just won't leave you alone. They just linger in your head and and you and you keep thinking about them and you try to start a new book and and you just can't leave these characters alone. Her Last Affair absolutely is one of those books. I love it so much. Uh, I'm giving this uh, book away to as many people as I can, and uh, I know you're going to love it too. Welcome to the show. Oh, Hank, it's an honor to be here, and it's I'm so grateful to you for saying that because I work so hard on these characters and on my books, and I put so much of my heart and soul into them. So uh, to hear that kind of praise from a reader like you means the world to me. So thank you. Uh, it's it's absolutely true. Um, John, we've got so much to chat about today, but before we do, uh, we begin each show with the same question, and we have to get this out of the way before we can move on. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? What is my first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? As For as long as I could remember, I wanted to be a writer. And I remember my mother had a book of wallpaper swatches, like one of those kind of big, chunky books with samples of wallpaper swatches. And I used to pick the patterns I liked best, glue them to cardboard, bind them with duct tape, fill them with construction paper, and write stories inside that then I would try to sell to my family for 25 cents a story. <laughs> <laughs> so I was both a writer and a publisher from an early age, and I actually still have one of those. It's so frail and fragile, this book, from when I was a little kid. Uh, it sits on my shelf, and so I'd say that's, that's my earliest memory. And I, I actually shared on my Instagram recently, uh, I found a little movie clip of me as a kid walking around with a pad and paper writing frantically just walking around the house writing so i i think i came out of the womb wanting to be a writer i love that so much um john i hear stories from people all the time that that have these early 
realizations uh, that that you know they have the storytelling gene, or you know how however um, that happens to people. Um, but more often than not, um, it's a circuitous route that people take from that early recollection or realization to um, you know they're them finally writing the book that they want to, publishing it, getting it out to the world. Um, was this a straight through path for you or were there other stops along the way? There were many stops along the way. <laughs> uh, you know, my, uh, my father was a cross country truck driver and uh, my mom ran a small driving school with her sister. So a lot of driving, really good at driving. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of driving in my blood, but um, <laughs> no one in my family had even gone to college. Never mind become a writer. It just seemed so far flung a dream, you know, from what the life we lived. And so, I, even though I wanted to become a writer, I just didn't know how. And when I got out of high school, my parents got me a job at a factory. This factory, the Dupont factory in Newtown, Connecticut. We all know Newtown uh, from the sadly the, the school shooting, but this was many, many years before when Newtown, it's a little rural town and they had the Dupont factory there and I worked there and I didn't really fit in, but I did my best. And I just, again, didn't know how to become a writer, but I started going to state college at night. I saved my money. I worked nights as a telemarketer, weekends as a stock boy. And I started saving my money and went to a small state's college. I commuted and I lived in my parents' garage because we didn't have, we only had two bedrooms, four kids. My grandfather lived with us. It was chaos in our house. But I built a little, <laughs> saved money and built a little bedroom in my parents' garage. And I commuted to school and I majored in business because I was thought it was practical, even though I cannot even add or subtract or do any math. It was horrible. It was the wrong major for me. But I minored in creative writing and I had a poetry teacher, Vivian Shipley, it's her name at the school, who really saw something in me. And we all know the importance of a mentor and a teacher. And Absolutely. Uh, she encouraged me and I began writing at first poems and a little bit of fiction, but I still didn't know how to do it, how to make that a reality. And then Sadly, my younger sister uh, passed away after her senior prom. She went to her senior prom and she died not long after, which oh, was, I'm so sorry. Uh, thank you. It was the horrible tragedy that fell upon my family and we miss her still. And in, but in the aftermath of that, I always say, I realize, and I know writers aren't supposed to use cliches, but I always say, I use one when I tell the story that I realize that life is short as we know. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, I always wanted to be a writer and I saw how how tenuous and fragile life is. So I thought this is what I want to really do with my life. So I ended up double majoring in English and business. And then I applied to NYU and I, I won some, I won some writing awards at college. I applied to NYU. I got in, I got a partial scholarship and my father at that time was bringing in uh, Broadway show sets. As I said, he was a cross country truck driver, but he got a job working for this, ugly era trucking, which used to bring show sets around the country for show tours. He was bringing in the set of Kiss of the Spider Woman, the musical. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a giant birdcage in the back of his truck. And so I packed my clothes and garbage bags. There, my dog barking at a squirrel. I'm sorry, Ruby. <laughs> That's fine. She doesn't understand interviews. But uh, and I moved to the city and I, you know, I waited tables for 12 years and um, 
and wrote. And even then it's not a, I don't know how long you want me to keep going with this thing, but even then there's more to it because it wasn't even then I magically got published. There was, there were many more setbacks and twists and turns, but um, that was basically how I got on the path to becoming a writer though. You have also, uh, you're the longtime books editor of Cosmopolitan. Um, how did you wind up in that position? Well, so I moved to New York. As I said, I went to NYU. I wrote a book uh, while I was in graduate school at NYU. And I should say I had a, a fantastic mentor there, the novelist Anne Hood, who people um, I hope are aware of. She was my professor at NYU and really took me under her wing. And and we, we're still dear friends to this day. But anyway, I, I wrote a book while I was working with her at NYU. And I sent it to a you have to get an agent after you write a book. And I met this editor and the editor said, you don't need an agent, just send me the manuscript. So I send it to her and about a week or a month later, I get a, get the manuscript back and it was in a box and I pulled the manuscript out of the box. And it's a very polite letter from the editor saying she didn't connect to the characters as much as she hoped. But then this little scrap of paper fluttered to the ground, to the floor. And it was an in-house a note from an in-house reader that was mistakenly left in the manuscript. It was not meant for my eye, my eyes. Ooh. And it said, and I quote, I could barely make it to page 60. And I feel really badly for anyone who has to read the whole thing. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. oh hey. no. that's not how hey. I wanted that story to end. John. <laughs> I, I took to my bed. <laughs> I was very dramatic. <laughs> I thought I'll never write again. And, you know, it was just too painful. I was, waiting tables trying to support myself i had no money and you know as i said my parents i love my mom and dad and they just didn't understand like they thought it was like a what my mother would call the time a pipe dream like you're gonna become a writer yeah right you know it's just like we didn't know people who did things like that yeah so i just thought you know what i'm just gonna i'm not gonna write anymore and at, around that time i heard about a job reading fiction submissions for red book magazine for 50 cents a story. And at the time, Red Book Magazine published 35, no, no, sorry, they published 11 stories a year, but they got 35,000 submissions, what they called the slush pile. That was wow. the unsolicited submissions, not from an agent or anything. And so I would go to go up to Red Book, fill bags with short stories, and then go home. And they gave me these form letters to attach. But I felt the rejection letters, but I felt so bad after the rejection I had suffered that I would always write in the margins to people like, don't let your dream die. Don't give up. Keep going. <laughs> you know, but and then from there, I heard about a job upstairs at Cosmo. And I went on the interview and I again I had no money, but I bought a jacket uh, from the Salvation Army for $12. And I my Ann Hood had said to me, you're, I said, they said, do I need a resume? She said, you're a writer. Writers don't need resumes. So I remember I went on the interviewer and the interview and the woman interviewing me said, where's your resume? And I said, I'm a writer. Writers don't have resumes. <laughs> Hank, I think she hired me because she felt sorry for me. But so. Um, or she connected with your bravado. Who knows? Yeah, maybe that's a better way to put it. It could spin on it. But um. It was the first, the, my first day on the job was the day of the O.J. Simpson verdict that tells you how long ago it was. I was just out of NYU and uh, we all went into Helen Gurley Brown. People listening, some might remember her, others will not, but she was an icon in the magazine industry. She, yeah. you know, made Cosmo what it was. We all went into her office to watch it. And I remember everyone was glued to the TV, but Helen was this 
little bird of a woman and she maybe it was 75 at the time and had just had a breast done it was wearing a leather <laughs> mini skirt and a leopard print halter and everyone was staring at the tv waiting for the oj verdict but my head was cranked around just staring at her <laughs> um so you know and then i started slowly during that time writing again i was i was cleaning under my bed weirdly i don't know why hank but cleaning and writing are very connected for me like it doesn't make any sense but i if i'm stuck on something i go vacuum i wash the windows i, I don't know my mother's a, like a massive cleaner too so sometimes if i'm stuck i just organizing something else helps organize my thoughts and so i was cleaning under my bed and i heard the first sentence to a story which was whenever my father disappeared we looked for him on hanover street and so i thought i'm just going to write it down and then i went back to cleaning and then i heard the next sentence and I went and wrote it down, wrote it down. And I thought really that sentence was something true for my own life because my dad, may he rest in peace, he passed two years ago in a motorcycle accident, actually. But when he we were when, when I was younger, he was quite the drinker and carouser and had a million girlfriends. And I spent a big part of my childhood with my mom driving around to bars or girlfriend, his girlfriend was, and not she would send me into the bars to get him out or into his girlfriend's house to get houses to get him out. And so that that's not traumatizing for a kid. Is it? Mm, you know, it's just my <laughs> life. I don't know. And yeah, I guess it probably wasn't the best thing, but you know, it's just my life and I'm grateful yeah. for it either way. Sure, and, um, sure. but I wrote that sentence down and then I kept writing and I thought I'm just going to write for myself, but because public trying to get published is so painful and so hard. And so I'll just write this for myself. And unlike the last, the, that I could barely make it to page 60 book. That book um, I wrote and it sold very quickly and uh, in a two book deal with Harper Collins, who is still my publisher today. And I've gone on to write many books with them. And I was lucky with that first book, Boys Still Missing, because it's weird. I'm like, I, ha I have, I guess I'm kind of an optimist in ways, because, you know, when you're, have a book coming out, your publisher says, well, you have to get what's called blurbs, you know, those quotes on the back from other yeah. writers. And they said, so do you know anyone? And I didn't, I was new to publishing. I said, I don't know. Let me think, I, you know, I don't know him, but I'm going to write Frank McCourt and ask him. And they said, well, he just won the Pulitzer Prize. You, you might want to aim lower. <laughs> and I said, well, I'll just write him. Maybe he'll do it. I don't know. And so I wrote him a letter and his assistant wrote back and said, sorry, Mr. McCourt is too busy to read your, your book. He did just win the Pulitzer Prize. And I thought, okay, well, I tried. I always feel like you can just try and live. But then a exactly. few weeks went, yeah, a few weeks went by and the phone rang and I picked it up and there was this man. I wish Hank, I could do an Irish brogue. I'm not an actor at all, but I, I hear on the other end of the line, this man speaking with an Irish brogue. And he says, John, this is John Searles. I say, yes, it's, this is Frank McCord. He said, I was leaving to go to Oregon for an event and I need something to read on the plane. And I just grabbed, your book off it was an advanced copy off my assistant's desk and i read the first half on the plane that i've been in the hotel here reading it at night and i think it's fantastic can i give you some words of support and i said oh, uh, yeah he yes. said it's not, it's not too late is it and it was right around when they had already i said if it is too late i will find a way that is not too late and so i grabbed a pencil. Oh, my billboard something yeah <laughs> exactly in paper so he read me the first sentence and i said i was so nervous and i said, thank you very much mr mccourt goodbye he said i'm not done yet oh. and i said oh sorry and as he said the next sentence and i said thank you very much mr mccourt goodbye and he said stop trying to hang up on me i'm not done 
and then by the time he read the whole thing, Hank, I'm embarrassed to say I'm a bit of a crybaby. I was in tears actually. And I think he got freaked out. Like this guy's a weirdo because he said, you go compose yourself, young man. Uh, and I hope we meet someday. And I actually did meet him a few times before he passed away. And he was a wonderful man. And anyway, so that was, that was how I began publishing and then I've written, you know, after that I wrote Strange for True, which was just made into a film a couple of years ago. And, a book called Help with the Haunted, and now I have my new book, Her Last Affair. So um, that's that. That's a I little love, bit about that. I love that story so much. Um, <laughs> Thank you. One, one thing that that um, yeah, I know a lot of writers who have worked in publishing, either um, jobs like like you had with the the books editor at Cosmo, or uh, some people will work for a publisher, uh, you know, maybe work in, in editorial or, you know, there, there are lots of places where you can fit into the publishing industry without actually being a writer. Um, and and I feel like that that sometimes when I when I talk to people that they they accept a position like that because they they know they are a writer and and maybe they've they haven't had success yet but plugging into the publishing industry feels like a, a sort of a win like uh like I'm I'm around books I'm around storytellers and maybe even if I haven't realize my dream yet i'm it's still scratching an itch uh, if you will inside me by just being part of the process and i think for some people uh, they kind of resign themselves to um to that position and they're they're happy and and that's enough for them uh, but some people being in the industry in the machinery of storytelling if you will um kind of lights a fire and and it encourages them to push on that you know if all of these people that I'm around can do it then then why why can't I um did did you ever have a moment like that where you're working around storytelling and around storytellers and books and did you ever uh was there ever a temptation to to just accept that lot and you know this is I'll be happy I'll be satisfied by just being here does that make sense at all? Well, it, I know exactly what you're asking. Yes, I very much do. And I, I noticed that with people who want to be in the film world, too, and then they, they move to L.A. and they end up in a kind of a, a, a sort of tangentially connected job that's not really in film, but then the, it kind of feeds them and they're happy with that, which is right. good for them. You know, I would say for me, Cosmo, don't forget, I grew up, like I said, my dad was a truck driver. You know, I grew up in in Connecticut, but when people hear Connecticut, I think they have this image of everything's Greenwich and New Canaan and people sipping right. scotch and playing croquet. I did not grow up in that Connecticut, but the town I grew up in at the time, now it's very suburban, but when I grew up, it was a very rural, quiet town where you have like a diner and a and a drive-in hamburger joint and kind of a grocery store. And, it was, and now it's much more developed in like a suburb. But so I... Um, ending up at Cosmo was like Alice in Wonderland falling in the rabbit hole. Like it was a whole new world. I had never experienced anything like it. And also I would also say growing up in my town, you know, I didn't know that I was a gay man growing up. I was just didn't know I didn't fit in. And I was, I was not athletic at all. And I was really teased and really bullied pretty terribly. And, 
you know, I would hide in the library all the time and read. And in the summers, my parents would send me trucking with my dad to quote, make a man out of me. I always say they didn't get the results they wanted. (laughs) But anyway, so I felt like the world was not that welcoming to me, if that makes sense. I mean, not, not always. I had certain friends and I was a waiter and at the restaurant I had friends, but, you know, customers would even come in and like the husbands would make fun of me, like being, being gay. And I didn't even really know I was gay. I just was just trying to live my life, you know? But when I got to Cosmo, people were just really nice. It was a great office. It was filled with smart women. It was run by Helen Gurley Brown and then by Bonnie Fuller. And then for many, many years, the wonderful Kate White, who's a dear friend of mine to this day. And it was just such an accepting, loving, open-minded environment. And so I felt welcome there, which was a really nice feeling. And when you feel welcome and supported, you also then thrive. So I felt just like I kind of came alive in this environment. And Cosmo at the time was the number one uh, monthly magazine in the world. It had been for years. I don't believe it is now. It's, you know, magazines have really changed in the last five years or so. But so people would send all sorts of books. And when I was at NYU, you know, we studied mostly literary fiction, but at Cosmo, every sort of book was sent to us, romance and thrillers and literary fiction. And, you know, so I, I just learned so much about how publishing works, but it it did not have that effect on me where I thought, well, I don't want to write. It actually inspired me to think, well, look at all these books. Like, you know, so, so many people I know are writers like, oh, I'll never write a book. It's too hard to write. And it is a hard thing to do. But I, I'll walk into a giant Barnes & Noble or a giant bookstore like Tattered Cover or Powell's or something like that. And I look around and think, well, look at all these books. And it seems that almost seems easier to me. Like, well, if all these people can do it, I can do it, you know, and because I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm the brightest person out there or, you know, the best writer in the world, but I believe I am a smart person and a good, good writer and a hardworking writer. And I know how to tell a story and create interesting characters. So I, I give it my best and do my best. And those years in the magazine industry inspired me to, to do better. And so that's what I started doing. John, sometimes you read a book and um, it's a great book and you you uh, appreciate the story, you connect with the characters and and, and it's a good experience. Um, and then another time you'll read a book and, and this really goes for um, genre fiction especially and you you get the feeling that the writer is a real fan of the genre and of the genre conventions and you know everything that that kind of makes up what you know where this book fits in the world um in reading her last affair i can tell that you're a real fan of thrillers and and psychological suspense and um it's just so smartly put together and so so well crafted you can tell that that you you're, you're a fan of it. What, where does your love of this type of story come from? Well, thank you. First of all, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, what's funny is I never really think my books always get categorized as thrillers and suspense. And I, I guess apparently they are, but <laughs> I just think of, I just try to write a story and I go back to that letter I received by mistake, that in-house note that said I can barely make it to page 60. And I feel really badly for anyone who wants to, has to read the whole thing. 
And I think as painful as that was at the time, it was a, what do teachers call it? A teachable moment. It's not right. what they call it. It was a teachable moment for me as a writer. And I have the letter still it's in my, in my den, uh, tucked inside one of those books I used to make as a kid. And I keep that letter in mind because I never want anyone to have that feeling. And so I try from page one, paragraph one, sentence one, to create a question in the reader's mind that's going to pull them along. And in the case of her last affair, the first sentence is, every marriage has its secrets. And I want that, you know, the, the, the kind of simple way to say that is the hook, but I want the, to pull the reader in and invite them in. Every marriage has its secrets to wonder, what are the secrets of this person's marriage? What are, you know, it's, it's to say that is kind of a statement and so it presents a mystery and a question. But I also start with character. I would say that this book, Her Last Affair, you know, it tells the story of three seemingly separate characters. Right. One is the woman, Skyla Hall, who ran the drive-in, an old drive-in movie theater with her husband for nearly 50 years. And a few nights before their golden anniversary, he dies in a freak accident. And a year later, she decides to rent out the spare cottage on, on her property that's under this tattered old drive-in movie screen to a mysterious stranger. Then second character is seemingly disconnected a thousand miles away, a woman named Linnell, who's in an unhappy marriage. She's been, quote, canceled for uh, a photo, that questionable photo from her youth that turned up on the social media. So she got fired from her job. Uh, and she, her marriage is kind of boring. She's about to turn 50. And she engaged, she hears one morning uh, from in a Facebook message from her very first love. And he says, I've been thinking about you for years and they begin engaging in this online uh, affair. And then again, seemingly disconnected, the third character is a man named Jeremy, who's kind of a failed writer, who's unhappy with the way he looks. And uh, he gets an assignment to go cover a restaurant, to write a restaurant review in Providence, uh, which is the town, the place where he experienced his first great love and first great heartbreak. And when he's back in town, this woman broke his heart horribly, but he works up the nerve to look her up. So it's three characters. So I really started the book with character more than thinking about plot. And they seem very disconnected. But then halfway through the book, through a series of twists, the book turns then into the second half much more of a thriller uh, with that pace of a thriller and the surprises of a thriller. So I would say it's a blend of genres. So I think about characters, character-driven suspense, and thriller in kind of an homage to film noir and, and movies in general because of the drive-in movie setting. So as you, you said that you begin with character and you you have the idea of these three characters. Did you have any idea where the story was going um, when you began? And, and I guess the, the underlying question that, that's kind of underpinning that is, do you consider yourself, you know, in, in the writing community, we love to put people in one of two camps, either pantsers, you know, writing by the seat of your pants or plotters, people that, that really work out the details of the story before they ever start drafting it and and you know develop a roadmap so of sorts um do you consider yourself falling into one of those two camps i fall into a mix of both because i 
kind of have loose ideas and then they were always changing and evolving. Then I scrap out on a piece of paper one direction, but then when I get there, it doesn't feel right. It's very instinctual for me. Like, you know, I have these ideas. I wake up in the middle of the night, I think, oh, this is what it should be. And then when I write it, if it doesn't feel right, it's all about needing to feel right for me. And sometimes you have this great idea and you try to write it. And if it doesn't feel right, the words just literally stop coming and I can't, I get really frustrated. Um, so in terms of your question about this book, you know, there's always a blend of influences with all my books, like, you know, with Strange But True, it's about a family that loses their son after his high school prom. And as I said, my my sister passed after her high school prom. And so there was obviously that sort of larger um, inspiration. With Help for the Haunted, I you know, I grew up in the same town as the couple who were the, were the basis of The Conjuring. Do you know those, those yeah. movies, The Conjuring? Well, I weirdly, I grew up with them and I got asked to go back to town. I used to see them as a kid in church on Sundays at the grocery store. And they, you know, they were so spooky and scary to me because they hunted demons. And as a kid, you know, so I went back to town <laughs> and I was asked to, they made a quilt, the librarians, and very nicely. And it was they honored any writer from the town. They put your name on this quilt and there weren't a lot of writers in the town. It was me and this, mainly this woman who was the ghost hunter. She was much older now. We're standing next to each other, posing for a picture for the town paper. And uh, if the bubble over my head, if anyone could have seen it, it would have said, when I was a little kid, you scared the crap out of me. <laughs> so <laughs> I just had the idea, like, what would it be like to be the child of a demonologist? And because I, I had memories, I didn't write it so much about them, but my memory as a kid, how I felt seeing them in town. And so um, that's how I came to write Help of the Haunted. And her last affair was a mix of influences. I just was in the beginning writing these character pieces, and I knew I wanted to write something noirish. Um, and also a bit funny, you know, it's, I always think my books, I put a little bit of dark humor in them. And then I say to my editor, isn't it hilarious? And she's like, no, not really. You have like these orphan <laughs> girls and murdered parents. But this time she said, John, I have to tell you, it is really, really funny in parts. And so I was, it was a, a, I was really thrilled about that. Um, but I also, when I would go home to see my mom to visit her, I passed this old sign off the road for the a sign that says Rocky Point Drive-In. And it was it's an old abandoned drive-in movie theater. And every time I pass it, I just would stare at it and just think those what if questions. What what who or who owned it? And what if it, you know, what if it had been owned by this couple? And so I started researching online abandoned drive-ins, and there are so many around the country, and the images are so beautiful and evocative. And actually we made it video we're going to share on social media on my instagram um coming in the coming weeks of all these different beautiful images that i had found and they're just haunting like the tattered screens the bent speaker poles these the screens reaching skyward they're just dramatic and it just seemed like so ripe for like a great story and so i I, and I and I had love on my mind a lot because I would say I wouldn't call it a love story, but I'd say it's a story about love and about three characters who are all searching for love and reconnecting with their past. Um, and so I don't know. I just thought, what if it was owned by a couple for 50 years? What if the husband died before their anniversary? What if she took in a stranger? And then I just I was off and running and, it you know, 
I want it to be a story. I want it to be a story about the power of love to impact our lives for both good and bad. And I hope that's what I did. And then weirdly, after all the noir crazy stuff that happens, the very last minute has quite a happy ending, uh, which I'm thrilled to hear from readers too. The, in in her last affair, the beginning, and, and I know exactly what you're talking about, the, the shift that happens about halfway through the book where it kind of morphs from one sort of story into another, um, but it's done in such a way that um, I've been thinking all morning about the words that I would use to describe it, but the, the beginning of the book is a bit of a slow burn. Um, and I, I love that, uh, that I don't mean that as, uh, uh, to, to insult the book at all. Um, because I love stories like that. I love to get to know the characters, to really feel like that, uh, that I'm forming a relationship with the characters. And, and I don't mind that, um, you know that the plot uh, is is secondary in the beginning of a book. I, I really want to know the characters um, because as I understand them and their motivations, then when when the plot element elements really kick in, um, I, I'm I'm all in with them because I understand the characters more. Um, was that a, a conscious effort on your your part, or were you as the writer kind of getting to know the characters yourself and 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 then? You got to a point where it just made sense for these other things to start happening. How, how does how does that character development uh, and the shift into uh, a more plot driven stage of the book? How does that shift happen for you? I just think for me, if things and I'm speaking for me, so I don't want to. I'm not saying anything negative about other thrillers that work this way, but for me, if I have a really strong sense of character, I'm just so much more invested. When something starts with the plot and someone's, you know, instantly, you know, running through the woods, being chased. And, you know, not that that's not compelling, but I just, if I don't know the characters, I'm, I'm just less engaged. And so for me, um, it's about kind of, putting the pieces in place and then ratcheting it up. And really all, all the hints are there that create a mystery where Skyla starts saying right away about her marriage, having secrets. So that plants the question. Then she rents the, her extra cottage out to this man. And you instantly wonder who is this guy? And then I feel like when we move to Linnell, I joke with my editor, it feels like we moved to Tom Parada territory because we're in the kind of <laughs> suburban, suburban house and a marriage with a woman who's in an unhappy marriage. And she starts having this online affair and she's just had, I had fun with that because she just had her house. Her husband convinces her to have their house redone and she hates the way it's been redone. And um, there's a lot of humor there. And also her sort of, awkwardness about having this weird sexual relationship like there's a line that says something like there's a lot of people in this world who are experts at playing it with themselves in front of a laptop Linnell was not one of them <laughs> for her it's, she's a mom but she's also like trying to connect sexually for the first time with this guy from her past who she really loved years ago so anyway that's why I started with character but I did need Hank I knew because part of the big question in the beginning for the reader too is how do these stories connect and then as I you and I both said they do halfway through but I wanted the reader to, I wanted to say to the reader trust me this is all part of one thing so I had this idea because it's set primarily at an old drive-in to use movie quotes to start each chapter and the quotes they're, they're movie quotes of films that once played on the screen at the drive-in and the 
the quotes act as clues to the mystery of the book and hints at what's about to come in the chapter, either tonally, thematically, plot-wise, character-wise. So it's a fun puzzle piece for the reader because the clue gives you a feeling. And whether it's like a classic like Casablanca or a more sinister movie like Psycho or The Shining or kind of forgotten 80s fluff like cannibal run or mannequin or you know they're all these great so it's kind of a movie lover's dream and like because they're all these great film references but the film quotes act as clues to the mystery of the chapter they're about to read so and it's also creates a cohesion or was my intention to show the reader even though these feel like separate stories they're all part of one story it kind of gives it a like a, a a vessel i guess or something in which to live if that makes sense Absolutely. When you're hearing this episode, Her Last Affair is available everywhere. Um, We're going to have links to it in the show notes where you can grab it from Amazon if you want to hold the paper in your hand or Kindle edition or audiobook. Um, However you like to to read, you can grab it in any form, Uh, but also visit your local bookstore. You know, you're going to – this this episode is going to air on release day for the book, and, uh, you know, go support local books. We we need to – uh, it's been a tough time for for booksellers over the last couple of years, and and let's let's try to do our part to make sure that these bastions of hope uh, stay open. And uh, I know you're uh, you've had a lot going on with bookstores, especially for the launch of this book. Can you yes. tell people a little bit about what's going on there, John? Oh, thanks so much for bringing that up, Hank. So we are doing something very exciting, which is. Uh, an in-person event, which will be nice, but it's also streaming with, we partnered with 40 independent bookstores around the country. So uh, let me explain. The actress uh, Academy Award nominated actress, Amy Ryan, who people know probably most recently from Only Murders in the Building, which was on Hulu. She starred opposite uh, Steve Martin, Martin Short, Selena Gomez. She also was a star of The Office, of The Wire. And she was twice nominated for Tony, once nominated for an Oscar for her role in Gone Baby Gone. Uh, So people really know and love Amy Ryan. And she starred in the film adaptation of my novel, Strange But True, which is currently streaming on HBO Max as a fantastic cast. It's Brian Cox from Succession, uh, Margaret Qualley, Nick Robinson from Made, and Amy Ryan. And Amy has generously offered to host a conversation with me at New York City's Symphony Space, which is a very fancy, nice place. I'm honored. Uh, you know, when I moved to the city in my dad's tractor trailer, if someone said that this night would be happening, I probably wouldn't have believed them. But, <laughs> but anyway, we're going to do it in front of a live audience, but we're also partnered with, as I said, 40 independent bookstores around the country. And if any reader who orders a copy of her last affair from the store, any of those 40 stores will be given a unique access code to stream the event virtually as it's happening. And then they can watch it after the fact too with the code uh, at their convenience, but you can live stream it too. So the list of stores I've been sharing on my social media, which is on Instagram, it's just at John Searles, my name, and on my Facebook, which is John Searles author. But Hank, I can send you the list too. I don't know how you shared these things, but. Absolutely, um, I'd be glad to put that in the show notes of the episode for sure. Yeah, Uh, I'd be honored and thrilled for people to come. It's gonna be a really fun night because Amy is really funny and spooky, and kooky, sorry, funny and spooky (laughs) and smart. 
I couldn't combine smart and kooky to smooky. Anyway, um, <laughs> she's just really wonderful. And we met on the set of Strange But True and we've just kept in touch mostly. We talk a lot about books over email and we've had lunch and she's just a wonderful, wonderful, very accomplished woman, but really down to earth and a big reader. And so uh, that's great. And then I just found out too that I booked a Today Show segment uh, coming up, which I'm really excited about as well. So there's a lot going on. Oh, and then a week after the book comes out, we're doing something with Jody Peacock, the writer, uh, where it's called, I read it in a week book club. So it's actually a little bit more than a week, but it gives, the book comes out on March 22nd. And then on March 31st, we are doing something, a virtual event called the I read it in a week book club. So if people want to get their copy, come to the Amy Ryan event and then tune in with Jody and I to chat about the book. Uh, I'll, I'll send you all the information, Hank, as I have it and I'll also post it on my social media accounts and things. So. Absolutely. We'll be happy to plug all of that into the show notes of the episode. Her Last Affair, when you're hearing this, available everywhere today. Go grab your copy and uh, and get in and, and, and watch the the uh, the Q&A session is going to be fantastic. John, this has been so much fun uh, talking about the books and writing. Um, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they connect with you online? Uh you know, I'm trying to be a little more active on social media than I was because sometimes I get lost in writing. But lately, I've been really posting quite a bit on Instagram, which is, again, at J-O-H-N-S-E-A-R-L-E-S and on Facebook. And then um, people can also just go to my website, which is john-sorrels.com. 